Well, brothers and sisters, Satan did not want you to hear this sermon this morning. You know, he, he doesn't want you to hear any sermon, uh, by the way. Uh, but this morning, I did what I normally do. I woke up early, and I went downstairs to spend some time in the Word and in prayer, and, and I take some time to look through my sermon and make some last-minute edits. And then I hit print, and then I hit print again. I kept hitting print, but nothing was coming out. And uh, so, but here I have this sermon. I called Trev, and Trev, in the last minute, was able to print this thing out for me. But here's why I'm telling you that. Every, every time that you shout an amen, every time you utter a hallelujah, every time your heart is risen in worship to God as a result of his word, it is a reminder that our enemy is a defeated enemy. That his time is short, and that in the end, God always gets the glory. Amen? Amen. Uh, turn in your copy of the scriptures to Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing in our series through the book of Philippians. And listen as I read God's word, starting in Philippians 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that you would do a mighty work through the proclamation of your word. We pray that what would be seen now is the wisdom and the goodness of your word and supremely the grace and mercy that you have poured out to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you nourish the hearts of these believers, of your people? Would you call those here who have not yet trusted in you to, to living vital faith in your Son, Jesus Christ? Would you stir repentance and faith? And would you cause us, your people, to grow more and more as we consider and remember all that you have done for us, having reconciled us to yourself and to one another? Do this for the sake of your name. And again, for the sake of our joy in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One cannot explain the explosive power of the early church apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community in the midst of the visible church. A community which the world could see. 
By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. That's a quote from a book called The Church Before the Watching World uh, by a pastor and apologist named Francis Schaeffer. Uh, Another pastor, Ray Ortland, puts it this way. He says, our churches must be marked simultaneously by gospel doctrine and by gospel culture. These things must never be separated. We we must have both. The, The gospel we confess must work itself out in real ways as we live together. And the way we live together as the church of Jesus Christ must be controlled and shaped in every way by the gospel of Jesus Christ. To have gospel doctrine without gospel culture is to have hypocrisy. To have gospel culture without gospel doctrine is to have abject fragility. But to have gospel doctrine and gospel culture, God's grace being worked out in the lives of his people in real time, that's the very power of God. As you know, we're continuing to make our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And if you've been around, you remember that Paul's primary reason for writing this letter is to encourage the Philippians to continue making progress in their faith. They've been running well, but Paul doesn't want them to coast. He doesn't want them to relax. He wants them, as we read, to continue striving for the faith of the gospel. Now, here in our passage this morning, we come to a loving but a forceful exhortation by Paul to the Philippians as a church to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's an emphasis Paul will repeat, by the way, in many of his epistles. Ephesians 4.1, he says... I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul prays for the church at Colossae that they would be filled with wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner uh, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then he writes to the Thessalonians, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is what I'm saying. This is what Paul is saying. For Paul, spiritual progress means that our manner of life together will be increasingly matched by our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Spiritual progress means increasingly the way we live our lives together matches the confession of our mouths. And that's my prayer for this church. I know it's Trev and Jeremy's prayer for this church. I know it's many of your prayers for this church. By God's grace as a church, we are running well, but we we cannot coast. We must strive all the more after lives of gospel purity and gospel practice. So how, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the way you do that is you understand three things from this passage. You understand the call to this kind of life, the character of this kind of life, and the cause of this kind of life. Give me your three C's today. The call of this kind of life, the character of this kind of life, and the cause 
of this kind of life. You tracking with me? You guys with me? I see you. You're here. We're good. Yes, I got one in the back. We're good. Everyone, they're with me. Okay. Uh, let's, let, let's look first at the call to this kind of life. Paul says, only, that is above all else, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the call. That's the command. So what does, what does Paul mean? Well, the, the key to understanding this, what Paul means is in this phrase, let your manner of life be worthy. Now, the, the main verb there is a single word in, in the Greek. It's the word polytuiste. And, you can, and, and what Paul means there, what you, you'll probably hear it in the root, is to conduct yourself as a citizen. You heard in that word, that, that little root, politic? It's to conduct yourself as a citizen. In fact, if you're, if you're reading the ESV, you'll probably see like a little footnote at the bottom. There'll be a little, little subscript number and then a, a footnote that says something like, uh, only behave as worthy citizens. Now, you have to understand that Paul uses that word because he knows the idea of citizenship has a very special significance to the Philippians. Uh, 30 years before Jesus was born, a very famous battle happened at Philippi called the Battle of Actium. Very significant in Roman history. And because of that famous battle, Philippi was given the distinguished status as a Roman colony. Philippi, the city of Philippi is not on the Italian peninsula, but it was given the, the status of a Roman colony. That meant they were, exten- they were uh, uh, basically a, an extension of Rome itself with virtually all the privileges of a Roman city. And so as a result, the, the Philippians were, were very proud of their citizenship. They thought very highly of their citizen, citizenship. Uh, but of course, as an extension of Rome, the Philippians were expected to conduct themselves in a way befitting a Roman city. You see? So what is Paul saying to the Philippians? He's saying, in the same way that you must live in a way that befits Rome and honors Caesar, you are called by God to live in a way that befits heaven and honors Christ. He says, you have an infinitely more glorious citizenship in the kingdom of God. Therefore, though you are in a foreign land, live as an extension Live as a manifestation. Live as an embodiment of that kingdom, conducting yourselves in a way that befits a colony of heaven. A gospel outpost who has as its king Christ himself. If you're a history buff, I'm a little bit of a history buff. Uh, You know, in the 17th century, uh, the uh, British Empire started colonizing the Americas. Um, and kids, where are my kids? What kids can tell me uh, one of the first 13 colonies? Can anyone tell me what one of the first 13 colonies was named? And I'll give you extra bonus points if you write all 13 on your bulletin. Does anyone, can anyone give me one? I'll give you a hint. You live in one. Oh. America, that's, that's the broad, that would be, the, that'd be like the United States at the end. That's the whole country. Any, anyone? Yeah. Okay, United States, that's all the states together. How about one of the colonies? Anyone know? New Jersey was one. 
There's a Massachusetts colony, the Virginia colony, the Rhode Island colony, the Connecticut colony, the Georgia colony, North Carolina, South Carolina. These were all among the original 13 colonies. And what you, if you know about the 13 colonies, you know that they were not originally independent states. They were actually uh, colonies. They were extensions of the British crown. They were subjects of the king, bound by English law, and expected to live as English men and women in a foreign land. Brothers and sisters, so it is with the church, minus all the, you know, like the revolution stuff, not that stuff. We, we are subjects of a king who right now reigns from heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God. And as his subjects, we, we are tasked to live as citizens of heaven in a foreign place with Christ as our king, the gospel as our law, love as our heart, the great commission as our task, and our aim in all things, the glory of God. You see, when, when the unbelieving world looks in on the church, what they should see is a little glimpse of heaven. When the world looks in on the church, that's what they should see. They should see a little colony of heaven. They should see a little glimpse of heaven. It's, it's an imperfect glimpse, I'll grant you. But it is a glimpse nevertheless. And the world may hate what they see. They may be drawn to it. But either way, what they should see is an embodiment of the very kingdom of God in the lives of the king's people. So the church is to live together in a way that befits the gospel of Christ. They are to be gospel citizens in a way that properly and, and suitably demonstrates the glory and the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the measure of their worthiness is the gospel of Christ. Our lives together are to be shaped and marked and distinguished at every point by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we have built our entire lives together around. And anything less than that is, is a form of communal hypocrisy and collective fraud. Lindsay and I recently watched a, um, a limited series called Dr. Death. Anyone watch that? No? It's pretty good. Uh, it's a limited series about a, that's a true story, uh, about a man named Christopher Dunch who was a neurosurgeon. He had a PhD in neurosurgery from the University of Tennessee. He completed a prestigious fellowship program at a leading neurosurgery clinic. However, despite his impressive credentials, he had been carelessly shuffled along through these programs and through these fellowships without them really actually testing his skills so that he really had no business, no, he had no ability to actually operate. Nevertheless, he was given operating rooms. And when all was said and done, after treating 38 patients, 33 of them had been maimed and two of them had been killed. He's in prison now, by the way. The bottom line was that even though he advertised himself as a surgeon who was revolutionizing the field of neurosurgery, he was a fraud. He, he was a charlatan. He had no business being in an operating room. What he said about himself was not actually true. It did not actually match who and what he was. 
And Paul writes to the Philippians, exhorting them to live in such a way that the character and the content of their lives matches the confession of their mouths. So brothers and sisters, what about us? What about you? Are there areas in in, in your life, are there areas in our lives as individuals or together as a church where our culture does not match our confession? Where our mouths are hot, but our feet and our hands are cold. Where our practice does not match our preaching, as they say. Do do we preach a God of forgiveness and yet hold grudges? Do we preach a gospel of mercy and yet keep a record of wrongs? Do we proclaim a God of patience? patience and yet grow easily irritated with one another do we do we speak of God's generosity and kindness but live as those who are stingy and cold and tight-fisted do we speak of a savior who came in the world to the to serve but constantly expect everyone around us to serve us and 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 balk at the thought that we would be expected to serve you see, when the world looks in on your life and looks in on the life of this church, do they get a glimpse of heaven? Or are they getting a glimpse of just another group of people living their lives as, as, living their lives as if this world is all there is and nothing more? Brothers and sisters, when the, when the gospel breaks in, it changes how you live. Can I say that again? When the gospel breaks in, it changes how you live. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. That's God's word. So has it? Has, it cha- has the gospel broken in? And has it begun to move the furniture around? Has it begun to flip you upside down and change the way that you live your life? Have your priorities been rearranged? Have your desires, your, your passions, your loves, have all that, has all that stuff begun to be shaped and conformed to the gospel? And Paul calls us to live lives that together reflect our gospel citizenship. That's the call. What does that life actually look like? What is the, the character of that life? That's the call, of the, uh, the call of that kind of life. What is the character of this kind of life? Well, let me put it this way. What character traits mark out a group of people who have begun to live out the reality of their heavenly citizenship? We could answer that question a lot of different ways. And perhaps over lunch when we set all these tables up and you get some tasty soup, you can discuss it. You can think through all the different ways that our heavenly gospel citizenship should impact the way we live. But in our text this morning, Paul puts his finger on two particular qualities that mark out gospel citizens. The first one is unity. The first one is unity. Look there again in the text. Verse 27, we read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you hear Paul's emphasis? You hear what he's emphasizing? Whether he is able to come and see them or must hear how they're doing from far away, he longs to hear that they are standing together 
that they are of one spirit and one mind, that they are striving side by side together for the sake of the gospel. Paul wants to hear that they are living out the reality of their spiritual union with God and with one another in Christ. You know, when when Lindsay and I were married, things changed for the good. They changed. In a thousand different ways, our our lives were intertwined and merged together. If if you're married, you know what what, what I'm talking about. Right, from sharing a bank account to sharing a bathroom. Our, our lives were unalterably shaped by our marital union. Right? Our union together had a real life, real time, real world implications. Because marriage is not merely a concept, but it's a, a description of a new reality. Our spiritual union as husband and wife has real implications. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, your spiritual union with Christ, your heavenly citizenship has real life, real time implications for how you live with one another because by virtue of the fact that you have been made one with God's spirit, you have oneness of spirit with one another. See, Paul's not saying to the Philippians, you guys just need to work harder to be unified. You guys need to look more like you're on the same team. He's not, he's not just saying like, hey, work, work hard to look like you're on the same team. He's saying, dear saints, you need to grow in living out the reality of the union you already have with one another in Christ. He's not trying to say, try hard so that you will be unified. He's saying, live out the reality of your union, which has already been accomplished by Christ in the gospel. Now, how are they to live out that union? They are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. How will they live out that union together? They are to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, let me just say a few things here. That, that, that word strive, it literally means to struggle or to fight or to labor, to strain. And do you know what that means? Paul says strive side by side for the gospel. To struggle, to fight, it means the Christian life is hard. Paul, did you see that built in there? You're going to have to strive. The Christian life is hard. And maybe just that fact is liberating, right? Does, does your life feel hard this morning? Does it feel hard? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel overwhelming and burdensome? Paul says, don't be discouraged, but be encouraged, for such is the life of every saint. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But here's what it also means. It means the Christian life is hard. It also means you can't do it alone. It means you can't do it alone. It will require sustained effort and supernatural perseverance. And listen to me. I don't care who you are. I don't care what gifts you have. I don't care, you know, what spiritual superpowers you have. I don't care what your Myers-Briggs tests tells you. There is no Christian that will persevere in their faith. There is no one that will strive in this sustained way 
apart from living side by side with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It won't happen. It doesn't happen. Listen, how how many people have you known that have fallen out of fellowship with brothers and sisters and then little by little by little, you just see them fade away? Why is that? It's because one of the main mechanisms, one of the main means that God has provided for us to persevere and grow and strive and strain in our faith is our, is our brothers, is our other brothers, sister, brothers and sisters in Christ. God has designed it so that we need one another. In fact, this is one of the primary evidences that the gospel of Jesus Christ has really come home to you and is bearing fruit in your life. Right? It's that you have seen your sin. And, and therefore, you have seen your weakness. You have seen your vulnerability. Listen, we just sung this, didn't we? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. By God's grace, if he's opened your eyes to the truth, you have come to know your own weakness, your own fragility, your own penchant for sin, your proneness to wander. And so you recognize your need for the body of Christ. For other brothers and sisters who will walk with you side by side and spur you on to a life worthy of the gospel. You see, one of the first things that happens in the person's life who has come to faith in Christ and becomes a citizen of heaven is that they no longer see connection to the church as a spiritual option or a spiritual luxury. They begin to see it as a spiritual necessity. They, they, they realize that I am left to myself all alone. I am up a creek. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this by myself. They realize that the, their progress in the faith is utterly dependent upon their fellowship with other brothers and sisters. And why is that? Again, it's because God designed it that way. Look, you, you have to know. You, you must know that left, I'm not, this is not me preaching at you. This is me preaching to us, to myself. You have to know that if left to myself, I will tank this whole thing. I will, if left to myself, I will blow it apart. I'll ruin it. I will wreck it. I need you and you need one another. You need people in your lives, faithful brothers and sisters who will encourage you and admonish you and instruct you and remind you and even rebuke you when it's necessary for your good in the Lord. Don't you see, one of the primary means that God has supplied for our perseverance in the faith is one another. How will you say to the all-wise God, no, I don't need that? Is he smarter than you? Is God smarter than you? This is a layup. Yes, he knows what you need better than you know yourself. And he tells you what you need is your brothers and sisters to prioritize it in your life. Make gathering with God's people a non-negotiable priority. Come early. Stay late. Join a life group. Make space in your lives for one another. And listen, I I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about like super Christianity here. I'm not talking, you know, people are like, oh, those are the people that are real serious about their faith. No, that's not what I'm talking about. This is, I'm talking about Christianity 101. This is basic 100 level 
Christianity. This, this is a gospel issue. This is ground level gospel getting worked out in your life. This is how Christians live their lives because their lives are rooted in the reality of the spiritual union they have with God and therefore the spiritual union they have with God's people. So Paul says, be what you are. Be what you are. Unified, brothers and sisters, family in Christ. Be what God has made you. That's the first thing, unity. Unity will mark out gospel citizens. But here's the second. And again, this is not exhaustive. There's way more. Here's the second one Paul puts his finger on, courage. It'll be a community marked by unity, and it'll be a community marked by courage. Look again, verse 27. I'm going to read it to you again for the third time. We can't read God's word too much. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Let me talk to the kids again. Or my kids. My kids aren't my kids. Are they? All right, there they are. Uh, is it wrong? Is it wrong to be afraid? Is it wrong to be afraid? It's not wrong to be, afra- uh, be afraid, right? You're not sinning when you hear a loud clap of thunder or when you wake up from a nightmare and your heart's racing and you feel fear. Of course you're not wrong. But what, what do your parents mean when they come and say to you, don't be afraid? They mean, don't be controlled by your fear. That's what they mean. They mean, don't be controlled by your fear. Remember what's true. That's what Paul's saying here to the Philippians. He's saying, uh, he acknowledges that there were real reasons for the Philippians to be afraid. I mean, Paul doesn't give us all the details, but it seems the church had real enemies bent on trying to frighten them. But Paul says, don't be controlled by your fear of them, or in other words, be courageous. In the face of fear, be courageous. Don't don't be controlled, consumed, overwhelmed by your fear. And I I wonder if as Christians, we've begun to be controlled by our fear. I wonder if as a church, as a local church, uh, the, the, the church broadly, if we've begun to be controlled by our fear. If we look at the world, the trajectory of our country, uh, the cultural insa- insanity that marks the 21st century, the increasing marginalization and vilification of, of Christian thought, and what rises up in us is a deep fear, a dread, an anxiety, questions that are uncomfortable to even ponder. We ask ourselves things like, what will it be like for us as a church in 10 years? What will it be like for our children when they're adults? How bad will things get? But, but, but hear God's word to you this morning. Hear God's word to you this morning. He says, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Are the feelings of fear wrong? No. Should we be controlled by them? Never. Instead, we we fix our minds and hearts to remember what is true. We're reading a book uh, in our life groups called Evangelism as Exiles. 
And I think all the life groups have gotten through this chapter. Uh, I think it's called fighting fear with fear or something like that. And he makes this point that really the remedy for fear is fear. Uh, you, you actually saw that. I don't have a bulletin in front of me. You actually saw that in the, the passage of Scripture that Jeremy read, right? He says, uh, he says uh, you know, don't fear them who can kill the body, but fear the Lord who can kill the body and throw the soul in hell. But then later on he says, fear not, right? For you are more valuable to your father than many sparrows. Right? The, the, the remedy for fear is actually fear. It's the fear of the Lord. When we remember who God is, who he has made us in Christ, we are set free from the shackles of fear. Or Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. You know this verse. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All fear is absolutely destroyed. You see, the gospel tells me God is unwaveringly for me. He's, he's on my side. And if God is on my side, even if the entire world is set against me, I don't need to be afraid. We sang it just before the sermon, didn't we? You prepare a table right before me in the presence of my enemies. Though the arrow flies and the terror of night is at my door, I'll trust you, Lord. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are on my side. Brothers and sisters, what do you have to fear? The Lord is on your side. History is going his way. Everything must work together for your good. And God will see to it that it does. He's promised he will, he will never leave you or forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never leave your side. No matter what happens, he will see you through to glory. Amen? You see, when you know that, when, the, when that reality begins to animate your heart and life, all fear is vanquished and you are filled with supernatural courage. It's, it's the, this kind of courageous posture that is a sign to the enemies of God of their destruction, but of the salvation of God's people. It's that courage that marks out heavenly citizens. It's the call it's the character. But, but what is the, what's the cause of this life? How do we begin to live a life like that? The call is to a life of gospel citizenship marked out by a heavenly unity and a fearless striving for the faith. How do we live such a life? Or better yet, what's the cause of such a life? I've already hinted at it, but let me say it as plainly as I can. It is the grace of God poured out to sinners in Christ Jesus. What is the cause of a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? It is the grace of God poured out to sinners in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 29. We read, for it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Paul grounds everything that we've just said, everything that I have just said to you, Paul grounds in this reality that God has granted to his people faith in Christ and to suffer for his sake. Now I know that some of you are twitching at that last part and I'm going to get to it and I will explain it, but but just hang with me here for a sec on, on the point that Paul's making. You see, what is it that produces this kind of life in a person? Is it, is it a sense of obligation? Is it a sense of duty or, or fear of what will happen if they fail? Is it the promise of, of what they'll gain if they uh, succeed? You realize, by the way, this is how every religion in the world works. So every religion, how every uh, system, how every self-improvement program that you can think of works. If you do the list, if you climb the ladder, if you obey the rules, then you will be blessed. And hanging over you is, is this big giant hammer that has or else inscribed on it, ready to come down on you if you fail. But don't you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying this kind of life, this, this life of heavenly citizenship, this life of heavenly unity rooted in spiritual union with God and with one another, this life of fearless striving after the faith is produced by something that only God offers in his word. Grace. 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 Look at that word, granted. It says, for God has granted. It's not an overly helpful translation because of how we tend to use that word. We say things like, I'll grant you that point when someone makes a persuasive argument. Or in history, we talk about those who are granted the right to vote. Or even more unhelpful, we talk about how an organization might apply for a grant. In all these examples, there is built into the word a sense that what is being given is deserved or qualified for. Right? A point is granted because it's persuasive. The ability to vote is granted because it's one of the basic rights of citizenship. A grant is given to the most deserving candidate. But here's the thing. This is not at all how Paul is using the word. The word there that's translated granted is actually the Greek word charizomai, which if you know any Greek, you'll hear the word charis in there, which you know means grace. What Paul is saying is that God has moved toward us in grace. He has poured out his blessings upon us, not on the basis of our merit, not because we deserve it or qualify for it, but on the basis of his free kindness and abundant generosity because he loves us. And it's that word grace that gets to the heart of what the gospel is all about. You see, in order to live a life worthy of gospel citizenship, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, you have to know what the gospel is all about. And in order to know what the gospel is all about, you have to understand grace. What is grace? It's God's initiative to move towards you in love for your good, irrespective of anything in you. 
In other words, it is God's free decision to do good to you despite your sin. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel, that despite your rebellion against him, God has moved towards you in amazing grace through Christ and has brought about your greatest possible good. Can I remind you again, brothers and sisters, can I remind you again of the grace of God poured out to you in Christ? Would you like, would you like to hear again about God's grace to you in Jesus? In the fullness of time, though sin had corrupted you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, and it had, and though you had lived a life of abject rebellion against God, ignoring Him, defying Him, grumbling against Him, cursing Him, hating Him, and you did. Still, He moved towards you in love. And that love put on flesh. It came into the world as a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He laid down his glory and walked into a world of sin. He he lived the life of perfect worthiness, of perfect heavenly citizenship, always bearing witness in word and deed to the goodness of God. But instead of receiving God's blessing, which he rightly deserved, he received God's curse. See, Jesus went willingly to the cross. And on the cross, God did not move towards him in love or kindness, but God moved towards him in the righteous fury of his wrath against sin. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus willingly stood in the place of sinners. He stood in my place. He stood in your place. He took on the burden of your sinful lives that have been lived so unworthily, so faithlessly, so hypocritically. And on the cross, he suffered the agony of the Father's complete rejection under the penalty of sin. I I just told you about the unity that you have with God and with one another. Do you know how that unity has come with you? Do you know how your union with God and your union with Christ has come to you? It's come to you because Jesus Christ went to the cross and was utterly abandoned. Do we, listen, we can sing surely goodness, surely mercy, right beside me all my days because on that day, on that awful, terrible, wonderful, beautiful day, he had no one by his side. His disciples deserted him. His closest friends betrayed him. And then finally, his own father, God the Father, abandoned him and rejected him and cursed him. He hung on the cross utterly alone so that you would never know what it's like to be alone. I told you that gospel citizens are empowered by God to live lives of fearless courage. How can they do that? Because when Christ suffered and went to his death, he went in agony and terror. Do you know that? I was just reminded again of uh, the story. Have you heard the story of Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley? They were two martyrs that were killed in Oxford 
1555. And as the, the fire was being kindled, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall soon light a candle so bright that all of England shall never be able to put it out. And you you know, their story is not like an anomaly in Christian history. You see over and over and over again, Christians going to their death with courage and fearlessness, singing hymns. But look at Jesus. Look at you. Jesus goes to his death cowering in the dust, writhing on the ground in the garden, sweating drops of blood, racked with fear and anxiety. Why? Were Jesus' followers more brave than he is? Were they somehow more courageous than Jesus? No. You see, when Jesus went to his death, he faced something that no Christian has ever faced or will ever face. He faced the very wrath of God. The unbridled fury of God against sin. On the cross, he endured the abject terror of God's blazing hot wrath. He suffered and went to his death in terror so that you could live a life without fear of anything, knowing that you will never have to face the wrath of God and that God will never ever abandon you and will never forsake you, but that he will be with you by your side every day of your life from now into eternity. And if God is on your side and Jesus is the way you know he's on your side, what do you have to fear? The guarantee that he will be with you and stay with you, that all you will know, if you are his, brothers and sisters, if you are his, all you will ever know. I know it doesn't feel like it all the time, but all you will ever know is his abundant blessing and love. And the way you know that for sure is on the third day he rose again. And do you know what that resurrection signified? It signified that the enmity between you and him was forever destroyed. It was buried in the grave, crushed, never to be seen or heard from again. What is it that has united you to this unspeakable blessing? Is it what you've done? Did you try really hard and God said, okay, I'll let you in? No, it is faith. And now look at our text. Do you see what, do you see what Paul says? He says, even Even the very faith that you have to move towards God with the empty hand of need. See, that's the difference between the grant, the way we use it, and grace. Do you want to know what qualifies you for God's grace? You think about someone that gets given a grant, right? You you, you get an application, you're like, we do this, and we do this, we do this, give us money. Okay? And, the, and the grant people are like, oh, yeah, they're deserving, they're qualified, getting the money. Do you know what separates grant from grace? Do you know what qualifies you for grace? It's just your need. That's it. It's you coming to God with the empty hand of faith saying, I have no resources in and of myself for spiritual good. You must help me. You, you must rescue. You must do what I cannot do. You must forgive sin. You must make me new. And Paul says the very ability to move towards God in that way by faith is itself a gift of God's grace. The very faith you possess to trust in Christ is itself a gift of God's grace. 
But now look, Paul says not only has he granted belief in him for Christ's sake, but also that we should suffer for his sake. I told you we'd come back to it. I'm going to be brief. What do we do with that? What do you mean, Jesus? That doesn't sound like a blessing to me. That doesn't sound like a good gift. Like, thank you for that gift telling me that I'm going to get to suffer. What? Here's the thing. Whenever Paul talks about his sufferings, he sees it in relationship to his union with Christ. Let me give you an example. Philippians 3.10. We'll get there in a few weeks. Philippians 3.10, Paul says this. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may gain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul sees his own sufferings as proof of his union with Christ and therefore the very evidence of God's favor upon him. Here's another example, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see what he's saying there? He's saying our suffering is not the way that we become children of God, but it is the very evidence, it's proof positive that we are indeed children of God, that we have in fact been united to Christ. So this is, this is what we do a lot of the time. A lot of times we see suffering in our own lives. We endure suffering. We face hardships and trial. And we think this is evidence that God has left me. This is evidence that I am not connected to God, that he's abandoning me and forsaking me. And Paul says, actually, it's the exact opposite. When you encounter suffering and trial and hardship, it's proof, it's encouragement, it's a reminder that you have been united to Christ and therefore are living in his footsteps. That you have been unalterably made a child of God and that because Christ has handled and conquered and destroyed the greatest suffering that you would ever endure, which would be God's judgment, because he has canceled that, you are now able to endure and persevere through infinitely smaller sufferings, knowing the God who will never leave you or forsake you. When you see and experience the grace of God in Christ, a grace that comes to you and says, everything that is necessary for your salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with God and with one another, for the promise of eternal life, that it's all been accomplished for you, that God has not moved forward, has not moved toward you saying, here are all the things that you need to do and then I will let you in. But instead God moves toward you and says, I have done all so that you might be mine forever. When that becomes an animating reality, when that reality begins to sink down into your heart, you will live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And to the degree that you abide in that grace and live in the warm sunlight of that grace, you will live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ is to live your life continually as a response to the grace of God to you in Christ. To live for the gospel, you must first live by and in the gospel. This is the power, the engine, the motor, the nuclear core of Christian living. That all our lives are to be lived in a grateful response to God's grace to us 
in Christ. We look at our own lives, we, we see our sin, our failures, our brokenness, and then we lift our eyes to heaven and we see the God of grace making us his own in Christ and our hearts rise and we wonder, how could you love me? And yet, in Christ, we know he does. And when that love rises in your heart in response to the grace of God poured out to you in Christ, it will produce a manner of life. A citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ. Brothers and sisters, look to Christ. Look to the grace of God and live every ounce of your life as those who have been made citizens of heaven in response to the grace of God and all to the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for your grace. We know how undeserving we are. And yet we wonder that you have moved towards us in grace, that you have moved towards us in love, that you have seen us in our filth, in our sin, in our brokenness and our weakness, and still you have set your love upon us and done all that is necessary in Christ Jesus to make us your own. Lord, help us never to live in a way that would seek to add to the gospel. Help us never to live in a way that thinks, sure, the gospel, but I also have to do X, Y, and Z. Help us to live our lives in response, knowing that we are yours, not because of anything we have done or will do, but because you are a God of mercy and a God of grace. Help us then to live lives in response to that grace that honor you, that glorify you, that bear witness to the union we have with you and with one another and to the fearless courage you give to us because of our Savior's death in our place. Lord, do this in and amongst us for the sake of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.